Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. My name is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're a collective of scholars interested in the Bible and related fields, as well as the intersection between biblical studies and theology. So thank you so much for listening. I want to give a special thanks to the team who helps develop and produce this show to Mim Ward on creative design, and I'll let the others introduce themselves here. I'm James Steinbach, web development. Rebecca Churvian, media and marketing. I'm Ed Hackey, and I produce the show. If you haven't already done so, please give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks also to those of you who give regularly to the podcast. That's super helpful because it enables us to keep running the show each week and to develop it. And also it's helping with some new initiatives that we're going to be kicking off in the next year. So stay tuned for those developments. Thanks again for listening and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome on script listeners. Today we have Dr. Clinton Bailey, who's done field work in the Sinai and the Negev for the last 50 years. It's five zero years. His bachelor's is from Hebrew University and his graduate work was done at Columbia University here in New York City. He was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and he made Aliyah to Israel in 1958. And in 1994, he was awarded the Emil Grunzweig a human Rights Award for his efforts to obtain civil rights for the Bedouins in Israel. He's authored several books, including Bedouin Poetry, A Culture of De- Desert Survival, Bedouin Law, and today's book that we're going to be talking about, Bedouin Culture and the Bible. Welcome, Dr. Clinton Bailey. Thank you. Um, as I told you before, I was reading your book for my own edification, uh, and I couldn't resist the opportunity to to talk to you live. Um the, the one thing that I was wishing was in the book, or maybe it was hidden somewhere and I missed it, um, but I was really hoping to hear how exactly you ended up living and working amongst the Bedouins in the first place. Well, um, I had, as you pointed out, I'd come here in 1958, and um, I studied Middle Eastern studies. And then I worked in an Arab village for a year uh, teaching English, but also polishing up my Arabic. And um, then I went to Columbia, as you pointed out, and I did my PhD there in, in subjects related to the Middle East. And, um, and I taught at Columbia, but I wanted to come back to Israel. So I came here in the uh, in the semester break of uh, 1966 and 67 to find work, and I didn't. <laughs> but one day, walking towards a, my last job interview, I I met Mrs. Paula Ben Gurion on the uh, David Ben Gurion's wife on the street. And uh, she was in her garden over the hedges and asked me, started talking to me. 
And then we had coffee, and she said, if you'd like to meet Ben-Gurion, as she called him, uh, he'll be here tomorrow morning. Come by, and I'll introduce him to you. So I, um, I did that, and he said, I told him I was looking for a job. He said, good luck. <laughs> and that was that, but a few months later, he came to America with his wife <clears throat> on a speaking tour and invited us to come and have tea with them at their hotel. And at some point, he he asked me if I had found a job in Israel, and I said no. And he said, well, listen, you know, we've just set up this little teacher's college and high school not far from Kibbutz Stable Care, which is in the heart of the Negev. And... Um, uh, write to the director, maybe he has something for you. So I did. And uh, he said, uh, you're, you're a bit overqualified for what we need right now. I'd been teaching uh, international relations at Columbia. But he said, we need, a, we need an English teacher in the high school and the, and the new teacher seminar. So uh, that's what I can offer you. And so I took the job because I wanted to come back, and um, and that was that. And while I was teaching English in the in the schools uh, at Stable Care, I also uh, I also used to jog in the afternoons, and I would meet Bedouin shepherds. Who, uh, who were raising their flocks in that area, grazing their flocks. <clears throat> and often they invited me to their tents for coffee or tea. And uh, I realized in visiting them that they had something very unusual and uh, they were really quite different from uh, anyone I had ever met <clears throat> and other Arabs as well. And uh, I began to be interested in um, how they survived under desert conditions because uh, uh, the desert hasn't changed for many, 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 many centuries. And so the ability to live and the need to live under desert conditions also didn't change very much. So that the older people I met at that time, that was in the 1960s, were people who had grown up in, uh, uh, in a pre-modern world where modernity hadn't really, hadn't really gotten to the Bedouin. That was in the Negev and in Sinai, which Israel, uh, which Israel conquered in the 1967 Six-Day War. And uh, so I bought myself a, uh, a Jeep and <laughs> an old Land Rover, and I, uh, I went into Sinai, and I went among the Bedouin living near, uh, near Stable Care and befriended them. They were always very nice to me. And I... Uh, I began asking them about their lives and about their culture. And the first, uh, the first thrust I made into it was through their poetry, 
and um, I knew that they liked poetry. And indeed, one day I uh, I was in Southern Sinai in about 1968 or 69, and uh, the Israeli army was having a census of Bedouin in a certain area in southwestern Sinai. So I uh, I stopped there and. Uh, I knew one of the officers, and I said, do you think there's anybody among among the Bedouin who are gathered here? And there were many, maybe hundreds, uh, who knows poetry. And he, uh, he said, yes, I think I'll ask. And so he asked, and, certain, and then I sat down with a relatively young chief of one of the tribes down there. And... Uh, we sat on the sand, and uh, and I opened my little tape recorder, and he began to recite poems to me, dozens of poems, all by heart. And as we were uh, as we were sitting there, other people came and sat around us, in other words, in circles, and uh, row after row after row, and since since. Bedouin poetry uh, is mostly mono-rhymed. In other words, every every line has the same rhyme in it. Not the same word, but the same rhyme. Uh, everybody was curious to see how he would end the line and keep the rhyme. <laughs> so they <laughs> So they always repeated the rhyme word after him as if, and enthusiasm and, and encouragement. And then I realized just how important poetry was in their life, in their lives, and uh, and how much they loved it. And they were all unlettered, or as we used to say, illiterate. And um, so I was, uh, that, I took that, those recordings and I played them for other people that I, I met in different outings and when I was living with the Bedouin. And uh, they all loved it, and they started telling me who recited the poems and why and, and who, uh, who composed the poems and what was behind it. So I really got into their world of poetry, and, um, and that's how I got into it. And so going over the poems I had recorded with the older people, older Bedouin, uh, uh, it occurred to me, no, I'm sorry, going over the poems, uh, and they would explain to me some specifically Bedouin uh, terminology or vocabulary, and also tell me the backgrounds of different allusions and uh, in Bedouin poems. And so I began to get a broader uh, broader picture of Bedouin culture, whether it was their family life or their law, their, <laughs> their, their, their economy, the stars, their knowledge of the stars, their knowledge of the plants and all these various things that make up a culture. And uh, I just kept going and did it for 50 years. For our listeners, I, I, 
I would, I, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners, when we say the word Bedouin, might not even know who we're talking about. So I wondered if you could just kind of paint the scene for them, like who are the Bedouin in, in the Sinai and then and then Jordan and, and Israel and Palestinian territories. What what will we see if we if we walked into their into their village or their camp? Um, and what are the kinds of things we'd smell and taste, etc. The things you would smell would mostly be uh, campfires <laughs> and the plants they put in the campfire. And, you know, in each tent, there was a fire going for guests and for their own cooking. But Bedouin are, um, are desert-dwelling nomads in the Middle Eastern deserts, especially where they speak Arabic. There are nomads in other countries, but they don't speak Arabic, and so I'm not. I'm not included. I didn't include them in my in my studies. And uh, the word Bedouin comes from the Arabic eh, Badia. Badia is a desert, and a Badawi is a person of the desert. So the Bedouin are really people of the desert, and in order to live there, uh, which because of desert conditions and the aridity of deserts, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't live off agriculture. So they, if they wanted to live there, they had to raise livestock, livestock, animals that could survive under desert conditions like the camel and and the goat and, the sh- and certain types of sheep. And, uh, but since there was never enough water in any one place or enough pasture, they had to go and from one uh, spot of pasture to another. And, um, uh, and so they were nomadic. And from that came the fact that they had to have a, a movable home, so they they raised they they built tents or they constructed tents that they could move from place to place, <clears throat> and um, uh, and since they were uh, greatly separated or distant from governments who rule the areas outside the desert, because governments made very little. Uh, entry into deserts, uh, except once in a while on a military, uh, uh, on a military uh, maneuver to, uh, to, uh, to stop Bedouin from uh, disturbing uh, caravan routes and things like that. But in general, there was no government in the desert. And so the Bedouin had to create their own rules for living together uh, and, uh, and to protect themselves primarily. And these rules are the rules that make up Bedouin law, which is another subject I went into after poetry because I had learned so much from the poetry and the proverbs that I heard uh, that relate to their law. So um, that was, uh, those are the Bedouin. (laughs) 
And, uh, and although the word Bedouin, as we know it today, comes from the Arabic, uh, Badu or Badui, um, their way of life in that area goes back much before that, much before that, because Arabic as a, as a language only began to develop in, say, the, in a, in a primitive way, uh, in an early way, uh, in the, say, in the uh, last centuries of the B.C., before Christ. And the, um, uh, but they, and so they lived in the desert, but they spoke other languages that preceded, uh, that preceded Arabic. And the culture goes back, we have evidence from both uh, the Egyptian side of the desert and the Iraqi side of the desert, the Mesopotamian side, that Bedouin culture existed. Uh, we have evidence of it's going back to 2500 BC. And so uh, ultimately, I, I got to the Bible, and <laughs> the Bible was written 1500 years to 2,000 years later. I mean, the basic Bible, Old Testament. And so um, those are the Bedouin, and uh, that's what I found of interest with them. In, in this case, in this book, you, um, you, yeah, you wrote on basically your your insights from living with and studying the, the Bedouin or living in and around them. Uh, and then you you see all of these scenes from scripture or see some of the laws uh, in the in the Hebrew Bible uh, that can be more easily explained through an appeal to some kind of Bedouin practice that has persisted even to this or, or at least until very recently. Um, so and you've already uh, mentioned that their hospitality was one of the things that uh, initially drew you in or made you see them as uh, very distinct from other people around. I wonder, um, and this is something I have trouble explaining to classes because I know that it's true from anthropological studies, but uh, the idea of the extremities of hospitality that you find in Bedouin culture, um, maybe you could unpack for us a little bit um, how far Bedouin will, will go uh, to protect anybody who comes into, their, into the, the frame of their tent, and then um, what does that tell us about scenes in the Bible? Let's begin by saying that... Um there could be no survival in the desert uh, if hospitality wasn't automatic. In other words, people had to be traveling from one place to another looking for pasture or looking for stray camels or going to a market either to sell their animals or to buy something. Um or they were fleeing from blood revenge or pursuing someone, but they had to be out there. And there were no hotels and there were no uh, no one to receive them except people living in tents here and there. And so it became, uh, it became part of their ethos and a, a strong custom of receiving whoever comes to your tent and they they do have a proverb that says um, 
today's host is tomorrow's guest. In other words, this pertains to everyone. And if you stop at a, a tent as a guest and you have a host, you can imagine that one day, if, it, if he doesn't get to your particular tent, he'll be in the same need and go to another tent. So uh, while someone is in your tent, and not only, I mean, there are other uh, other intimations that how of how important it was in that uh, when it when a guest came, you couldn't screen him. You couldn't say who are you, where are you from, what are you doing, or anything like that, and that would be in in very bad taste and almost a breaking of the rules. But the uh, you had to receive him for three and a third days. Essentially, and um, you had to make sure he had what to eat. You had to share with him. Now, scarcity is is so prevalent in the desert that um, that to share the little that you have, and we're talking about little. Don't forget. Uh, they didn't have access to a variety of foods, nor did they, um, nor could they take foods and pots and pans of, of of any quantity with them when they went from place to place when they migrated. So that um, uh, food was scarce, scarce with them, and uh, to share with someone the little that you had gave you honor as if you were a warrior or as if you were uh, in combat. And uh, there's an, another Bedouin proverb that says, who is a man? It's someone who can wield a sword uh, in battle and feed uh, and feed meat to his guest. So, in other words, you became being a host was was tantamount to being a warrior, and uh, and so people were very conscious of that. And being a good host was extremely important in, to one's reputation. And so, therefore, when people came to you even if they were fleeing from blood revenge that they had incurred someplace else, um, you received them and you had to protect them. And so the um, uh, you, uh, you were responsible for their welfare so long as they were in your tent. And these are things that you find in the Bible as well. I mean, the the great elaboration of uh, of how Abraham uh, received angels in the form of people that were sent to give him a uh, give him the message, bring the message to Abraham that his wife Sarah, already quite an old woman. Uh, would have a boy because she'd been barren up to that point. 
and uh, and so he entertains them, entertains them in the sense of provides for them. And uh, if you know the Bedouin rules of rec- uh, receiving a guest, and you read the Bible, it's <laughs> almost word for word. And uh, and and even uh, in another scene from Genesis. Uh, when these same angels who uh, are out to find out what to do with Sodom, that was considered a an evil place, uh, they stumble upon Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, and he also uh, he also protects them. And when the men of the uh, of the region of what we call today Sodom, uh, want to uh, violate the men and come to his tent or house. Uh, he says, uh, absolutely not. You mustn't, you mustn't shame my tent. And, and secondly, uh, you know, if you have needs, I will give you my virgin daughters, but not my guests. So that shows us uh, that shows us uh, just how this Bedouin custom of the importance of or the Bedouin value of uh, receiving guests and making making sure of their welfare uh, is the same in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I found that discussion fascinating, especially when you talked about the um the protection of women who are out on their own basically that they're actually they're protected by the law that has emerged and the rules uh of how to interact with one another more than they are physically protected so that you can you know there's no possibility if i remember correctly of there can't be shepherdesses unless you have very fastidiously enforced rules um if if a woman is violated in some way is, is that correct Yes, that's right. That's correct. And um, uh, I mean, to be uh, frank about it, in, in those days and under those conditions and conditions that prevail among other peoples and other parts of the world until today, uh, many women had very few, what we would call in a modern sense, rights. They had very few rights. And they they were dependent on uh, the men folk, and uh, and subject to their needs. And I'm not just talking about physical needs, in the sense of sexual needs, but also uh, the needs of uh, of what they did. Men protected the group because nobody else was around to protect them. And the women, while the men were on guard, so to speak, and looking after various things that were important to the family, the women had to look after the flocks as shepherdesses. They had to construct the tent uh, or put it up, put the tent up when when they came to new camping grounds. Um, They had to do the cooking and they had to raise the children when they were young. So that um, that was the case, but 
so that they could do their, they could fulfill their function of looking after the wealth of the family, which was the flock. Uh, it had to be understood by everyone that violating them, in other words, taking advantage of a girl who's miles away from anyone else in the middle of nowhere. And uh, uh, it was violating her or even talking to her when she, when she wasn't uh, a relative of, of, uh, of the person, the man, uh, was considered very serious. And uh, there's another proverb <laughs> that says, if a man's back won't protect him, neither will his face meaning that if people don't respect and fear him regarding the women, when he's away, when they're alone, uh, then they won't respect him when he's present. And so a man's total honor depends on, uh, not total honor, but uh, a considerable degree of his honor depends on uh, how people treat his women, and also how the women behave. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, speaking of Proverbs, uh, I want to come back to the issue of women, but uh, you use quite a bit of Proverbs throughout the book uh, to demonstrate a point. And um, I wonder if you, if you think there's any way in which the, the Bedouin use of Proverbs and the collections of proverbs and aphorisms we find in the Hebrew Bible, if those line up in any way, or do you think they're two completely different types of literature, as it were? Look, uh, a proverb either describes life or counsels life. And um, the proverbs in, the, in what we call the book of proverbs uh, doesn't necessarily respect the nomadic or the Bedouin uh, proverb. It doesn't relate to that, but they, they're more the proverbs of, uh, they're more the proverbs of, uh, of the peoples who lived uh, in Canaan or Palestine uh, throughout the ages. And they were influenced by the Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians uh, and the Hittites and the Philistines, whoever whoever was also in the area. <clears throat> and recently, uh, a Palestinian student um, uh, came to me for consultation about his doing a... Um, uh, uh, an MA or a PhD now on biblical proverbs. And he mentioned to me that uh, he sees that biblical proverbs aren't as, aren't very close to Bedouin proverbs. In other words, the whole form of them and the subject matter. And, uh, and then I came to the, re the realization for myself <clears throat> that the reason for that is that uh, the book of Proverbs was really influenced from outside the area and to a large extent pertained to people who were settled. And Bedouin Proverbs are Proverbs that help somebody 
both to understand life in the desert and to live it. And uh, so therefore, whenever I was engaged in a understanding a poem or understanding law, uh, to sum up an explanation, a Bedouin would give me a proverb. In other words, he'd, <laughs> he'd express a proverb. And, um, uh, and that was, the proverb was like an unwritten law. And in trials, uh, if somebody wants to make a point, whether if it's the, the defendant or the or the uh, accuser or the even uh, just a, a person present at a trial, if he thinks that the law is being distorted, he will use one of those proverbs, and 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 it will be most uh, uh, honored, most. Uh, yeah, that's actually really helpful. Even as I was reading your book, I, I got the sense that um, that the proverbs. Now that you say it, it makes it, it, it that clarifies it completely. That that the aphorisms that you're citing of the Bedouins did kind of function more almost in the legal framework, um, and less in this kind of here's helpful advice or here's some truisms or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. And one one day, I uh, after <laughs> say 25 years of uh of hearing these proverbs from from bedwin as they explained other things to me uh i decided i just asked myself one day it happened to be a yom kippur and uh, there wasn't much i was planning to do but i said i wonder if i wonder how many proverbs i have so i started going over notes and one thing or another thing and uh, it took me a week to go over what I had, and I must have had about 800 or so. And uh, I said, gee, I, I'm going to put all these in order. So I began going out and, and rechecking them with, with different people, uh, each proverb with, say, two or three different people, different tribes, uh, just to get the meaning and uh, the form of the proverb, and uh, and in doing so, I learned other proverbs, <laughs> and ultimately I wrote this book called "A Culture of Desert Survival," which is really Bedouin proverbs. And I think, if I remember correctly, I've I must have about one thousand some odd proverbs there, one thousand one hundred, two hundred. I no longer remember, but it was a lot. And I could explain Bedouin life or many aspects of it through these proverbs. Um, so that's how I organized that book. Th that that makes a lot of sense of how you're using the proverbs in this book. Because even as I was reading, I kept on thinking, wow, he has these very specific proverbs for these very specific situations. But if you had a whole litany of them, it, it, I, I can imagine why you were calling these to mind. Uh, for each instance that you're highlighting, if if I could come back to gender and, and or just the roles of males and females uh, for a second, um, the, you you note that that women can I don't know if represent is the right word or they can create a form of instability as they grow older and uh, can be married off. Can you explain very quickly if, if I have that right that um, 
why uh, why women and not uh, men in the family can yeah why they, why they can be more problematic if you're looking from I guess the father and mother's perspective uh, of the clan. Well, if it's the father and mother's uh, perspective, the composition of a clan among Bedouin is that all the males and the females, but it goes according to the males uh, who are the, the who are the descendants of a forefather five generations ago. In other words, the grandfather of my grandfather. The grandfather of my grandfather is five generations. All of his descendants belong to the clan, and they are totally responsible for each other. It's, it's what you'd call mutual responsibility. And uh, and these are the people you turn to whenever you're in trouble, and these are the people that keep others away from you because of their size or because of their uh, their uh, their bold behavior and things of that sort. And uh, and if I killed someone, for example, in another in a different clan. Any one of his clansmen can take revenge not against me only, but against any one of my clansmen. So you get, you can get dozens of people working against dozens of people. That's already quite a, quite a conflict, and um, and people don't like bearing. I mean, it's very important to them not to bear these responsibilities. Uh, for people who may not be of their seed, for better, for lack of a better word. And so in order to prevent that from happening, every family is, uh, is given the task of raising its daughters to propriety so that they are not tempted or uh, not tempted or uh to to have relations with men and uh, so it separates uh even even within the family the uh you know the, the 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 little girls and boys can play together but at a certain point they don't play together anymore the girls play with the girls and the boys with the boys and uh and this all of this is intentional to realize that there are there are two worlds there and um and so a uh, if a girl strays or is even seen to stray in other words thought to have strayed from their point of view when i say stray i'm talking about from their point of view um uh it the 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 blame is on the family that they haven't succeeded or haven't tried enough to uh, raise her to propriety. And so therefore you have this rather odious, in our terms, uh, rather odious uh, custom of killing daughters who have strayed. And so therefore the family itself has to uh, has to do away with her 
and it's nobody else's business except that she has to if it's known she has to be uh she has to disappear from people's eyes she cannot be a uh and a bad example to other girls i hope that was succinct enough yeah yeah no that's it's fascinating and i uh, it makes me wonder when we look at the hebrew bible especially i think of the book of genesis um but also the the torah more generally um when we look at because uh, it sounds like w- the way we're painting the picture, it sounds like it's women are ultimately and completely subjugated to a particular way of being in the world that protects them for particular reasons, so that so that legal or uh, vengeance disputes don't break out. Um, so there's kind of this peacekeeping function that women play in this very w- in bizarre way, uh, you know, according to the way we think about these relations. And I wonder when you turn to well, they play it. They play it in a in a passive way, right? Right by by playing their and pa- I just, the passive if role. I, yeah. If I may, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, uh, if I uh, if I can uh, just uh, interrupt you for a second, it should be borne in mind, however, uh, that uh, anything that happens to a uh, a woman, even after she's married is the responsibility of her clansmen, of her father's clansmen, her brothers, her cousins, her uncles, and things of that sort. So that if a, a woman is m- mistreated by her husband, for example, uh, her, her menfolk are not only entitled, but they are obligated to look after her interests and see what was done wrong to her and why it was and all of the rest of it. So that uh, uh, she's not abandoned. In other words, you know, she is always under under their, if you want to say, care. And uh, there's, a, there's a, another proverb <laughs> that says, uh, the 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 good of a woman is for her husband. In other words, she takes care of the tent and she cooks and she, uh, she uh, grazes the flocks and etc. 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 And the bad is for her clansmen. In other words, and bad is not just what evil she may or what misbehavior she may engage in actively but also anything that happens to her from somebody outside the clan. So that they, they are responsible for her. And all the, all the problems of a girl uh, are, go back, uh, are uh, the responsibility of the, of the clansman, not her husband. I think your book is very helpful. Um, you know, for those of us raised in the West, uh, we're raised as individual, r- rugged individualists. Um, and everything you say in the book and, and what you're saying now, it, you're, you're drawing a picture for, for us where everybody is in a kind of a, uh, they're enmeshed in a matrix of relationships um, where whatever anybody does is going to affect somebody else directly or indirectly, which we would say is true in, in all communities and societies. We, we just like to pretend like it's not true over here in, you know, in America or in the West. Um, but here you cannot pretend like this is not true, I guess. 
Don't forget you're talking about a society, although the deserts are very large in the Middle East, but it's a it's a contained society in a sense, whereby, uh, you know, if if a couple, if a, a family in Boston has a daughter living in Tulsa and uh, she's having trouble with her husband, um, they can wring their hands and they can be sorry for it and they you know, might give her some advice, but they would never, I mean, they have no, they have no authority to interfere and, and operate on her behalf uh, in that sense, except maybe talking to the husband or his family or something. Like that. Yeah. I don't know why you picked Tulsa, but that's where I was born and raised. <laughs> Strangely. Yeah. Well, occasionally it makes the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's the it's the closest thing we have to Bedouin yeah. society in, in America. So, um, I I wonder um, for you in writing this book as we uh, as we bring this to a close, what was your greatest hope that this book would accomplish uh, for for whom I guess who who are you writing to and what were you hoping um, people would see that they hadn't previously seen. I think that what I wanted to show as honestly as I could, in other words, without without making that the reason for the book or not using the material to justify the book or the reason for the book, was to show just how much Bedouin culture there is in the Bible. And it's not just Genesis. I mean, these very same things we've been talking about, you can find in... Uh, you can find in Judges, and you can find in Joshua, and you can find in in uh, in the in the books dealing with the monarchy, Samuel and Kings, and things of that sort. It goes it goes all through all through, say up until the up until the Babylonian exile. So, number one, to show just how much there is, and I think that what I've shown is quite a lot. Number two, uh, to explain why that is so. I mean, the Bible is a, uh, a religious book with a, a religious message. And, uh, and yet there are many elements of Bedouin life that are in the Bible that have nothing to do directly with that message. And so uh, it can be asked, well, why is it in there altogether? Why did the biblical uh, authors put so much of this Bedouin culture in the Bible? And my own suggestion, I, I haven't proved that, it's just a suggestion, but uh, my own suggestion is that the Bedouin were their key audience. And you know, uh, it's been it's been sort of the bon mot over the last fifty, sixty years that uh, the whole story of uh, Israel and the uh, what we call the West Bank today, or Judea and Samaria, uh, that's all fiction, and that the actual people who are described there are Canaanite peasants who fled. The downhill, the, the coastal Canaanite areas, for one reason or another, depending on the the advocate of that point of view, and um, 
and so and and there's always been bad blood between settled people and nomads because although there was some marginal contact the markets and things of that sort but there was also the fact that nomads uh could destroy crops that were grown by settled people and uh and they and they used they utilized their mobility uh to be able to uh take things and get away so they couldn't be found and, and so there's always been bad blood i mean you could say it's like the story of Cain and Abel and uh from the very beginning and um uh and so if that's the case and and uh and the people who devise the bible who i in a sense identify with the levites uh moses clansmen um why would they put so much emphasis on bedouin life either subtle or open if their main audience was to attract the canaanite peasants who would naturally hate that behavior and 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 not feel not feel identified with it and so uh that's a suggestion that we re we re uh, reexamine that uh, aspect of uh israelite history early israelite history uh and see that uh, there may have been a, a different solution that all in all i think if you <laughs> if you'll allow me <laughs> um all in all i would say that uh somehow or other people with bedouin background formed the basis of judaism and made contact with other nomadic people who had come from let's say northern syria aram aram as they they say and uh and uh and sort of brought a religion to them and they could identify with it because it made sense to them as a way of life and as something true something true to to form in in their in their nomadic way of life and then at some point uh there was a uh, sort of a takeover by the nomads uh of the of the uh, people who were living in the holy land at the time the canaanites the philistines the hittites the <laughs> hevites you name them and uh so i think that you know that's i i put it all out there for just for people to examine and uh i don't i don't make any statements i only make suggestions well dr clinton bailey thank you very much for this book i learned something new every time i turned the page in this book so um it was fascinating invigorating and showed me aspects of scripture just as you've said that i've never noticed before that uh we can take uh we can take the Hebrews out of the tense, but you can't take the tense out of the Hebrew, as it were. Um, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> what a wonderful conclusion. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.